The Financial Planning South Africa podcast is intended for professional financial advisors. All discussion is limited to publicly available information and should not be interpreted as legal, professional or financial advice. Hi, I'm Louis van der Merwe, Certified Financial Planner. Join me every week where I get to have discussions with global leaders in the financial planning space to help you serve your clients better and run a more efficient financial planning practice. This is Financial Planners South Africa podcast. Portfolio Metrics is thrilled to bring you this podcast in support of our common passion for people and the evolution of wealth management. Our global business links precision investment management to expert financial advice through partnerships and technology. Portfolio Metrics is an authorized financial services provider. Comspace is a revenue management solution developed specifically for independent financial advisors. It is a web-based application that tracks, allocates, and manages advisor revenue. The system seamlessly reads commission statements from financial institutions and can address any permutation of commission splits. Comspace provides mind-blowing, out-the-box revenue business intelligence and analytics, along with super-flexible reporting to effectively manage and grow your business. Welcome to another episode of Financial Planners South Africa. So happy to have Brian Nickel here in person. We are sitting in um, a conference facility for the FBI 2022 convention. And last night, Brian won the award as the top PCE student for 2022. Congratulations. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. For people listening, they might not know what that means. And so today we can unpack a little bit your journey of becoming a certified financial planner. Okay. We can discuss why you chose to do that, you know, what pathways you considered, what the journey was running a full-time business and dealing with clients and life carrying on in between you studying. And let's explore this wonderful, wonderful area. Awesome. I'm looking forward to it. So congratulations. Um, let's unpack the award. So top PCE, what does that mean? Yeah, so um, thanks very much. I appreciate it. Um, it's so to to get a, a CFP designation, you got to do um, professional competency exams. So for short, it's PCE, and you can you get three opportunities a year to to write these exams. So at the moment, it's uh, March, June, and September. So the, the exams consist of two different papers, two case studies, back to back, day after day. And you have to get a certain mark, um, 60% or more um, aggregate for those both papers. Once you've got that, um, you are then competent to be a, a certified financial planner. There's other things as well, like um, years of experience. You've got to have your postgrad and so on. But the PCE itself is kind of, in inverted commas, the boards, if you think of like chartered accounting terms. Brilliant. Uh, I know Lilani from the FBI always talks about the four pillars, right? So education, ethics experience um, and the fourth one slips my mind but this this really is around the education piece or examination that's the fourth one right which yeah, which it. is the the pce component mm. so to get to that board exam what studying routes can you take um, specifically in south africa like what are the options of of exploring and actually getting to being able to write the the pce exam yeah. So you've got to have a postgrad diploma in financial planning. That's just the minimum requirement 
in terms of education. So if you don't have a postgrad um, diploma in financial planning, you will then have to obviously study that at any sort of institution. But to qualify for that, you generally need an undergraduate degree, um, a commerce degree, uh, LLB, or something like that. You can't necessarily come in with um, you know, a BA um, philosophies or something like that and do it because you will just not be there numerically. Your, I think your financial literacy won't be there. So to study the postgrad diploma, there's, there are several options in South Africa. I think they're all great. Um, they're all top universities. And I chose, uh, I ended up studying at Millpark and it, um, it was kind of funny. So I, I didn't have a plan to study necessarily, but I was going through some self-exploration in about 2020 and COVID hit and I was contemplating advice and if I want to remain in the, in the industry, so to speak, because it was just very transactional and I wasn't really fulfilled. And so I already then had my BCom and I have an NQF5 also through Millpark, um, which was a nice like bridging course. You know, it taught me what I needed to know to help people, you know, connect people with products, but it didn't help me change lives in, in any sort of way. And so in 2020, lockdown comes and I start calling up financial planners who I see online and respect and so on. And I was starting to ask them about what they do because I was trying to work out if I should commit to this profession of financial planning or not. And so long story short, I've interviewed some great people and I decided for myself, okay, I know what I want to do. It's financial planning um, and a particular kind of financial planning. And I realized I want to be as good as I can be to be as um, academically and technically, I want to be a really sharp sword so I can be a really useful tool in my client's toolbox. So now there was now a lockdown. So I started March, April, and then I had to start looking for universities. Postgrad, you know, you would start January. So I was impatient and I thought, you know, I was naive and I thought COVID will be done by the end of 2020. So if I can start studying somewhere now, part-time, like, you know, after hours, I can maybe break the back of the postgrad in 2020 and then just finish off when we're back at work and, and all that. Um, so I started researching universities. Like I said, there are several options. I won't like list them all, but um, what was unique about Millpark is that they have a cycle system. So they have five cycles, I think it is, a year that you can jump into and start your postgrad in financial planning. It's not a January to June, July to December semester setup. Um, it's a pretty intense course, but they do a module per, per eight weeks. And so you can jump into your postgrad like in the middle of the year and you start with your first module, which is induction. So I started, I think it was about August 2020. It's like the fourth cycle of the year or something like that. So that's how I started. So it was Millpark, their, their business model, their, you know, the way they, they, they accommodate people. Um, that was, you know, that attracted me to the institution. So, Brian, is that still sequential? So, someone starting in January would do module one, two, three. I mean, how many modules are there for? Um, so, no. So, so yes, it is sequential. So, you you can play around with the order that you do it in, but uh, Millpark is a bit different. So, personal financial planning. Okay, let me maybe take it back. So, for anyone who doesn't know, postgraduate financial planning is traditionally four modules. So, you've got financial planning environment, which is the tax and the law. Um, no one likes that one. And then you've got... Um, Personal financial planning, which I think is the, the giant. It's the big one. You've got corporates, and then you've got the case study, which is always last, and it sums everything up in a big, nice case study. What, what Millpark did was, which I think is extremely, extremely clever, is they took personal financial planning, 
and they, they broke it up into three subjects. So it's risk and estate planning, retirement planning, and investment planning. And they go really deep with, with, with each of those subjects. Now, you have to start also with an induction module. So I don't know if the other universities necessarily have that, but the induction module helps you get up to speed in terms of, you know, the law, tax, um, time value of money calculations, because you know what it's like. We don't necessarily sit with our HP 10B2 every day and do the amortization calculations and such. You know, we've got software in that. So if you've maybe studied, like I did, 2016, 2017, did my higher certificate. Now I'm 2020. There's been four years. I've forgotten some of this. Gotten a bit rusty. Yeah. So, so that module, it's compulsory, but it brings you right up to speed. And within two months, you're almost like you were studying before. And now you're running and you have to be running to keep up the tempo that they have because you can then say, okay, fine, um, induction. Maybe you do that in January. It's a cycle. So it's Jan, Feb. Then March, you start with your next one. And it could be, I think you have a bit of choice, risk and estate, um, corporate, um, you know, whatever the case may be. And then so you go through the rest of the modules and you will always end off with case study. So there is freedom to also stop and pause. So if you want to do a cycle, a break, a cycle, a break, especially I think if you have kids and stuff like that, you might need to do that unless it, beca- it could become a bit of a divorce course <laughs> if you if you try and do it all in one go. Um, so it's, it's a very unique model, but it worked for me. It was extremely t- uh, high tempo, but they, they go extremely deeply as well. And I think that sets you up well for you know, the PCE. It sounds really interesting the way they've structured it and kind of these cycles. And so is this a remote course or is this in person? Would you attend lectures or is it kind of watching pre-recorded videos of the lecturer telling you how this works? Okay, so it's it's um, fully online and Mill Park's business model is an online institution. They do have per module, it's something like two or three sessions where you, you all kind of go on a, a call, a Teams call with the the program lecturer and they would take you through concepts maybe an old paper or um the 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 general pitfalls for students so they'll take you through all of that regularly it's like two or three times but you you know you it's online so you you can contact the the lecturers or um the tutors they call them uh directly on a portal that they give you a student portal and then you've also got each other to lean on as well to to kind of get get through it Okay, so it's a, it's a little bit more structured because I just went through studying University of Free State and they send you your study guides and your textbooks that you have to buy and there you go. It's like, see you at the exam. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, it's, that's interesting. Um, Nikki, I think that's, that is going to be tough for a lot of people who maybe don't have self-discipline. Um, you do have self-discipline. I think this is your 25th mm-hmm. qualification. So um, that's not a problem for you. But if you look at, you know, you take the average person. I mean, you think back to when you were a full-time student, maybe. Yeah. You know, cramming was what it was all about, right? So you party, 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 and then you cram. You like a stomach ulcer and migraines. And then you, then you write and then you're free again. When, you, when you're doing part-time, when you're working, and you, you can't afford to cram at the end. You're going to fail because at this level, and I don't like necessarily saying the whole time at this level, but it's such big concepts and there's a lot of detail within each large concept. You can't cram that. Um, so what, the, what Millpark has done, which is quite unique, and um, I haven't seen it anywhere else, but they will have weekly assignments and or online tests. And so every week you'll have an assignment or test based on the coursework for that week. 
So you can't afford to build up a bottleneck. You really have to be on the ball, uh, which, which kind of gave me a new way of studying as well. So you have to study consistently and constantly. So what they do is they do the, the weekly assignments and tests. And so that, that keeps you current. You have to consistently study and constantly study. You can't afford to say, well, I'm taking three weeks off, you know, for some me time. Um, that's just, then you should not have enrolled in that cycle. So it keeps, it keeps you, keeps you going and it keeps the information um, very fresh in your mind because you're calling it up the whole time every week for some form of test. So they do that like six weeks in a row. Seventh week is no assignment because the eighth week you write your exam. And so if you do a back to back, um, cycles, you write your exam. I think it was like a Monday or a Tuesday. And then your next module starts the, the next morning. And so there's no break. So you have to self-regulate. There's a lot of dependence uh, on you being able to manage yourself when you, I think, study part-time. And I think that's for any institution. That's not necessarily a Millpark thing. Like you said, they just gave you a ton of books and said, you know, God be with you. <laughs> so you, you've, you've got to fill in the blanks. And so I think, you know, if you're an adult, you've got to decide for yourself, I'm investing in myself. And investment takes work. And that's, that's how I viewed it. I completely agree with that because this seems to be targeted towards people that are ready in the industry or profession, have built up a bit of experience and are saying, I need to sharpen the sword and get a little bit better in these areas. Mm. What was your expectation in terms of the amount of time and energy and effort that this would take? And I'm going to tell you why I asked that because when, when apparently when you study for your CFA exams, they send you the textbooks, but with that you get a few postcards. And those postcards would have a dog, a very sad looking dog with a leash <laughs> uh, saying, well, you're not going to have time to walk your dog. Your friends won't understand this. I think they show like a picture of a fridge just with a, with oh, a ton of... <laughs> so morbid. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's saying you're going to have to commit a lot of hours in yeah. this. So what was your expectation before jumping into this and now looking back and did those align? Yeah. So I, I got a bit of a shock when I registered... I know that they kind of, in the literature that the institution had, they talked about um, it's high tempo and you need to commit. Um, but you didn't, I don't know if they can really sell that. You've got to actually start and then work out for yourself how this is all going to pan out. So when I registered and I was you know, admitted, they sent me all the, um, the schedule. And I got the schedule and I thought, oh my gosh, um, this is going to be intense. So... So what I did was, I think the first night, my first study night was actually, let's just wrap my head around how I'm going to do this because I work a small, a small advice firm. So, um, you know, I do everything almost myself. And so I need to work. I've got a you know, wife, I've got life commitments, friends, family, church. And I just thought, I don't know how I'm going to do this because every week there's a test, every week there's an assignment and um, there's, they will say chapters one to five do this week and then at the end of the week there's an assignment so um, I realized that I needed to be very disciplined so I came up with what I call a rules-based approach to life <laughs> which I've actually started using in my life in general and uh, I got it from um, investing so you get rules-based investments where that you stick to a checklist you stick to your process you don't let outside noise distract you from the, the, the mission so what I came up with is I decided let me set an agenda in place, a schedule in place for myself and stick to that and, and create that rule. And so what I looked at was Monday evenings, Tuesday evenings and Thursday evenings I will study. 
Saturday days and Sunday days, I will study. And that is it. I will work until 5 p.m. every day, and I won't work thereafter. And I cannot work on the weekends. So, and that was, those were my rules. And what I mean by rules is that you kind of have to decide that that time for work, for instance, 6 p.m. Oh, deadline, meetings in two days' time, that time doesn't exist. 6 p.m. doesn't exist. It's up to 5 p.m. So if you can't do it between maybe 8 or 7 and 5, then you postpone those meetings. You manage your clients or your colleagues' expectations. Similarly for social engagements. If I say I'm studying on a Saturday, it would always be like from 10 until about 5 with breaks in between. A Sunday would always be after lunch and church, so until, until about 5. And never on a Friday and never on a weekend night. To, to, in my life, I've never studied on a Saturday or Sunday night. But um, the Fridays I did study when I was on study leave, which makes sense. Now, it's a bit weird because, you, you know, you get the invite from the friends. We're going to the wine farm, you know, um, on the Sunday at 10 a.m. or something. And you Come think, on, Ryan. Yeah, break oh. your rule. <laughs> yeah. I mean, birthdays and stuff, you know. Um, I had to say, look, I know you guys are meeting at 2 o'clock to watch the 3 p.m. kickoff. And then you're having a braai. I'll come for the braai. You know, there's a game on. But... I made a rule. And so I stuck to those rules. And it's very difficult in the beginning. But if you string, you know, two or three or four weeks together like that, you've formed a habit. And if you string a month or two together like that, you've actually just got a new lifestyle. And so for me, my lifestyle became living in um, boxes, if you want to put it that way. I, I was in the work box. I was in the spent time with my wife box. And I had study boxes. And I would live, jump from each box to each box on schedule. And I think that is how I was able to, I think, stick to the coursework and never, never really feel like I was behind the curve. I always felt like I was generally in touch with where I wanted to be in terms of the workload that we were doing. That's, that's such a great concept. And, you know, for me that prefer more flexibility, that sounds very rigid. And I think people listening to this might say, well, uh, I'm going to try it and see if it works. Like, do you think this is something that would work for everyone? Or you work backwards and say, hey, this, this is my strength. I don't operate in the evenings when I need to study. Um, I have these boxes. I think, I think it worked for me um, because I don't, you know, I don't have children, firstly. So I didn't have to be at 9 p.m. You know, helping to change nappies or anything like that. There were students um, who I studied with. You know, we were all in these forums together, and they said, "I have children." You know, my, my husband isn't necessarily that active in the family life, so I'm doing everything, and I only study on a Saturday and Sunday. So there, it's, it's like I think it's horses for courses. However, I would I would I would argue on paper this will work perfectly for anyone. But we don't live on paper, you know. Um, so at the end of the day, I think you've got to understand to yourself what your schedule is. Like, for instance, I didn't say Wednesday evening study. The reason why is because, you know, I have church on Wednesday evening and church activities. I'm not going to compromise that. So I just, but someone else might have something else. They might have a book club or they might have a dinner club. That's a nice thing to keep because it gives you a break. I had a rule, never study on a weekend night. If I'm 6 p.m. on a Saturday or a Sunday, and I can't, and I don't have the information in my head, I'm not going to get it at 8 p.m. I can tell you that now. Because I've probably been studying for five hours. So you need to call it. So what anyone can probably do is look in their life and say, it's like a budget. You know? What are the, the essentials, the must-haves? 
the like to haves and the just the complete cherry on top you know the luxury items and you can pretty much break your social life and your work life down uh, into those categories and once you start rearranging those and putting them into those kind of boxes you can say well look here it really would be cool every saturday to still go out to those wine farms or to and i'm captonian so i'm using wine farms i don't know what they do in Joburg, but you know to do all these activities but unfortunately, you only have so many hours in a day and so many days in a week. And you've got to divide those, those up accordingly. And so there will, something in your life will suffer, but it doesn't need to suffer for a long time. You can go back to that once you're done. But if, uh, if you commit the time, I'm pretty confident you will come out successful and you'll be back to normal in no time. It's very similar to like a training schedule, right? We have a race coming up. This is what we, what we need to put in. And this, these are the blocks, yeah. and that's where you train. So now that you have these rules for life and you're not studying anymore, kind of what's, what's filled that? Do you have other rules in place now for, uh, for these gaps? Or Yeah, so initially, <laughs> so when I, I wrote in, when I was at March this year, so after March, I did not know how people live with so much time. I could not understand. Um, so for the first month, I just... I just didn't want to do anything. And you must realize that I did my postgrad and I finished it at the end of 2021. Then immediately um, got into the, the, the PCE studies and I wrote that in March. And for the PCE studies, by the way, just to go back quickly, academic, you have those assignments and stuff. PCE is kind of like, you know, here's the stuff, here's the work, here's old papers, see you on the day type of thing. So you, you really do need to manage yourself there. But I, I had a, the same schedule. I kept the same rules. So I kept that in place regardless. Afterwards, it was weird. Life had changed. My lifestyle was now different. But I've started filling up. I gave myself three or so months of relaxing, maybe catching up on some series or whatever. But I'm reading a lot in those times now. And I'm also um, working a lot on you know, plans for the business and the future, my career. Um, because there are things that I want to accomplish. And I was so used to using a lot of that time for studying I don't, I would hate to use that time for Netflix. Um, I'm using it for reading and I'm using it to try and develop myself further. Brian, I work with a, a Gallup certified strengths coach. His name is Johan and I'm sure Johan's listening to this. And he always says that the most successful people in life dedicate at least five hours a week to self-improvement. And it sounds like you have now structured those pillars to say, how do I make myself better? How do I show up better? How do I show up better for my clients? But we don't live in isolation. So kind of what was the support around you? I mean, in terms of family and friends and businesses, were, were they saying you're going off on a tangent here and this is unnecessary and kind of almost like crabs in a box and trying to, <laughs> trying to pull you down or were, or were they quite supportive? Now, everyone was supportive. Um, everyone was um, very happy that I was studying further. Um, my wife, sh she doesn't understand how I could just like – after dinner in the evening, 7.30, I would always start studying. Almost mid-conversation, I would just like a robot, just get up and say, I must go. And then just turn around and walk to the office and close the door. So she was sometimes saying, are you sure you want to study? And you know, But she's extremely supportive, so she helped me a lot. Like I said, we don't have children, so it was easier on me in that respect. Um, yeah, family, otherwise supportive. Friends, look here, the, the invites came and they came. And I was turning quite a few things down. Um, and then the invites, you know, dried up a little bit because people were like, he's just going to say no. So I, I made a joke with my friends after I graduated or after I finished my PCEs. I said to them, okay, 
Um, hi, my name's Brian. I'm <laughs> and I just had to kind of reacquaint myself a bit because a lot of a lot of people like to do social things on a, a weeknight and it was just not available. So there was a lot of support. No one tried to pull me um, away from studying. But I think some people thought I was a little bit extra and in, in how I was just keeping my head down. But I was I was determined. Um I want to I want to do the best I can do for my clients and I want to be super successful. I want to have I know what life I want to live. I know how many clients I need to have to pay me to live the life I want to live and I know that I need to be really good at what I do. And so the rest of my life kind of depended on it. So there was there was enough um, motivation for me to to give it my all. Like living that life of excellence, not just mediocrity. Yeah. We've only got one shot. Yeah, and that's so true. I mean, sometimes we can blame external things. And yes, life does happen, right? You have to juggle. But if you put your head down and you have the support and you have the resources, I think it's it's phenomenal what happens. And, and the award that you've received is testimony to that. What is the reaction from your clients, Ben? Do they know that you've been on this journey? And some of my clients noted that my email signature changed. <laughs> I've got a, a comma CFPR, you know. Um, superscript. Yeah, superscript. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I had to work out how to do that. <laughs> um, so, so a couple of guys asked about that. Um, but, you know, during the journey, there were times when there was out of office on my email, you know, I'm studying leave or whatever. And there were inquiries about that. But um, I haven't necessarily publicized it per se. I haven't... Um, we haven't sent out circulars to clients to say, look, um, you know, Brian has now upskilled himself or whatever. But um, I do know for a fact that they can see the difference. You know, when I was studying a postgrad, you know, you finish a module and you just say, wow, I, there was, I thought I knew a bit. <laughs> I didn't really know much. Now I know a bit more. And you start using that um, in, your, in your life with your clients and it adds immediate value. So even if you don't have the paperwork yet, you know, you haven't, got, you haven't finished the case study module or whatever, you know what you know already. No one can take that from you and then you can start giving that to your clients. So if my clients weren't necessarily informed by me in like a circular, they would have seen it because I, I reinvented our financial planning process based on it. So there's been this shift away from the technical side, right? Um, I had, was on a panel yesterday around the psychology of money and everyone's talking about coaching, everyone's talking about the softer side of things, but yet we're saying the technical elements are important and we're going through these examinations. How, how do those two balance out? Yeah, it's, it's extremely tough and it's extremely tough um, to balance them out because you might think you get something like a you know, the CFP and you you think technically I'm there now and I can switch my brain off. I never have to study again. Listening to your talk yesterday and I must admit prior to that, I've been reading about this a lot and I just realized, you know, the work has begun because the coursework we do is very technically orientated and I think that's fine. You need to know what you need to know to do what you do and to, do, to make the impact in the lives of the clients. We are first and foremost technicians. And like you rightfully said yesterday in the panel, um, we are not therapists. However, we to get the best, if you're a technician, you're really super interested in getting the best quality information from a client. Now, you can't say, fill out a form, come back to me, I will use this and put it into my machine and spit out a plan for you. When you know that the reason why someone maybe wants to invest aggressively or the reason why they, they just 
you know, hell-bent on getting 30 million rands life cover. Why? Now, you might say, oh, okay, I can easily do that. You know, do a bit of a focused single need financial plan. But you're not really using um, your skills. And you're not doing good financial planning because you don't have the proper data. The data is unfortunately not going to come on black and white. It's going to come in words. And you're going to have to work out to yourself what that means. So what I will often do with clients is I'll ask them, okay, well, you know, why do you believe you need 20 million rand life cover? Or why do you believe you need to invest everything in an offshore fund or something? And so you get to the bottom of it, you know, several questions later and you realize it's just fear. They had a life experience. Maybe a family member died, their parents died and they had no life cover. And now they're paying bills, you know, that type of thing. And so you realize that it comes from generally places of vulnerability or fear. Now, that is brilliant data to work with as a technician. But you can't get that out just trying to apply ratios and calculations. You need to have other skills. And so that is why I said it's only just begun, I think, the work. Because you're a certified financial planner professional. You've got technical skills that are you know, of the best in the industry potentially. But now you need to know how to use those skills. And you're working with people. You're not working with case studies. And a case study tells you everything you need to know. Um, and a person sometimes sits opposite you. And while they're talking, you know, they just break down in tears. <laughs> and you realize that, um, you know, you need to maybe consider a bit more, um, even if it's not formal qualifications, you know, pick up some books and, and read about this because I'm doing that now. My journey into that is just starting and eye opening and it's extremely humbling as well. For someone that's curious of this journey, like what book would you recommend for them to start? Or Sure. Um, you know, like I said, it's, it's just, just starting for me right now. But I think that I've just got um, a book that's... So I'm trying to firstly understand why people make decisions the way they do. People sometimes come to you very confidently and say, you must do this for me. And, the, and the first, I wanted to understand where is this coming from. So I spoke to a mentor of mine. He's an investment professional. And he gave me a book that is opening my eyes. I'm busy reading it now. It's by Annie Duke, it's called Thinking in Bits. And I know you've read it before. And it gives, it gives you an idea as to why some people um, make the bets they do. And the, every decision is a bet. You're betting against an outcome uh, or for an outcome. And so I decided that would be my first journey into it, is just trying to understand people from a... It's also kind of very um, anecdotal. It's not necessarily a research-based book. Um, over and above that, I've read a lot of articles and listened to a lot of podcasts of, um, from, you know, you've, you've interviewed quite a few of the guys already, uh, Dr. Klantz, and there are, there are various professionals who, who talk about um, money behaviors, why we do the things we do. And it's not just behavioral economics, you know, biases, but it goes a bit deeper than that. Um, and so I've, I've been listening to a lot of podcasts. My, my coursework or my study work in that field has not began yet, but there are a few books I've got lined up. Um, I would just, first and foremost, the easiest way is listen to a podcast about it and realize that financial planners out there, as super experienced and um, successful as they are, they're having serious doubts about their ability to service their clients well into the future. And you've, I think you've experienced that too. And so that is why you've got in touch with that human side of money. And I believe it's essential for, for me to go down that route as well. You have such a nice way of positioning these things. And I can hear that you've thought about it. You've thought it through. You clearly can communicate. And so for people listening to this, 
I'd also add Dan O'Reilly's books to this, like Predictably Irrational. And for me, that, that was so entertaining, thinking about how we all, not just clients, how we all suffer from irrational decision-making, right? Mm. We think we're these rational humans that's going to invest for the long term, but yet yeah. we derail our own financial plans. Part of our discussion ended up around you having a financial planner. And it's, it's not often that we speak to financial planners that have their own financial planner. She's been a guest on the, on the podcast. Mm. Um, would you be keen to share some of your own experiences or just a vulnerability around a financial planner going to another financial planner? Like what, what sparked the need for that? <laughs> yeah, this is quite an interesting story. So Mary was the first person I ever called when I started interviewing planners. The reason is because I, I started reading about uh, books about lifestyle financial planning. And that started because I was on a journey of what else can I do excepting help people find products. And so I googled lifestyle financial planner Cape Town. And um, Mary, you know, uh, if you're listening, you, you, you feature highly on the Google <laughs> ranking. Your so, SEO is on par. <laughs> SEO is on par. So, so, yeah, so I found her and I just called her one day. I think it was like March or April 2020. It was literally lockdown. Herself and another great financial planner. I'll mention him. I hope he doesn't mind. Greg Snedden, top-notch guy. And so I interviewed them both and I really like Mary's approach um, and... She, she focuses a lot on the person and the money is important, but, you know, it follows, it always follows the person, you know, money doesn't lead the person. So, so I thought to myself, okay, fine. Um, I'll always remember the conversation I had with her. It was very enlightening. And I read over the notes that I took in the, in an interview that I had with her, um, about how, what, what were does. the questions you were asking? Sorry to interrupt you, but w when you were analyzing your subjects here, like what questions did you ask? Could you, can you remember any? Yeah, like, what do you do? Um, why do you do it that way? Where did you come from? Um, you know, where do you want to get to? Um, why do you, you know, you've, and then that would normally lead to questions. Oh, I used to work at this company. Why don't you work like the way, that way anymore? Oh, I had these problems and I were, and then I realized they, they did what I did years ago. <laughs> they had the same um, questions, the same itches that needed to be scratched. And I realized um, that I wasn't alone. So it was just, I was just super curious. I was curious because I realized if I was thinking that this thing, there are like how many billion people in the world, there must be other people that have thought this too. I don't know if anyone ever has a truly unique, unique thought. So I was looking for people who've had the thought already and aware of the fact that I'm not 21, 22, I am now 40 years old. So I thought I need to speed up my progress. So hence, go to people who can maybe be mentors for me and tell them, give me everything. I just wanted everything. I just say, give me what you have. I would love to learn. And the people that are true professionals, they give. The people that are not, they close off. The cards are close to their chest. And I picked it up. My I've secrets. Spoke, I've spoken to several people and some people not open about mm -hmm. what they do. Other people say, look, this is how my plan looks. Look, this is my process. And to me, that is amazing because that's the only way you will advance the profession. And so... To come back to your question, um, a few months go by and I told my wife about um, you know, Mary and, and you know, how she works, very keen, very interested in hearing more about it just as a general you know, a fascination with the industry. And then my wife went through some issues. She got retrenched during COVID, as did I think half of South Africa, and there were some massive financial decisions to make. 
and I was helping my wife, but I was helping my wife after hours when I had a little bit of time. And remember, I'm studying as well. And then one night over dinner, my wife says to me, do you treat all your clients like you treat us financially? And I said, what do you mean? She says, well, we've got big decisions to make and you don't really give us the time of day. You, you know, helping everyone else. And it's that whole, you know, cobbler's shoes always broken and, you know, plumber's taps are always leaking. And I realized that I was so busy trying to help other people and, and you know, um, do my work and just keep my head above water that I was ignoring our own financial situation. And my wife had just experienced a massive trauma and she actually wasn't getting the help she needed to get through retrenchment from a, you know, a job that she was super passionate about. And I was, and she said, can we speak to Mary? <laughs> and I was like, are you firing me? <laughs> and she says, well, you're not doing anything anyway. <laughs> and I thought that that's actually super true. And I said, you know, I want someone to, to hold the mirror up to, to me and to hold me accountable. Going through that experience with Mary was transformational for me. Um, it's, it's always going to be important for me in my life and my career. I learned a lot from that, heavily inspired by her in many respects. I'm not a coach, though. Um, I do like coaching conversations, um, but I'm not a coach and, once again, not a therapist. But what she, you know, the way she works and many other planners also work like that um, globally, it's, it's a tap into, you know, the reason behind everything. What is your purpose? Um, you know, what is this journey that you're on? Where are you going to? Why do you need the money at all? And so it was very um, enlightening for me to go through that experience. That's also further for me reaffirmed a couple of things the journey i'm on or i was on to study further in that it made it more important for me because i realized i need to do this kind of stuff but i want to be as technically astute as possible but um furthermore than that she showed me the value of planning because i experienced it and i think that is why i have no qualms at all um, talking to clients about how valuable financial planning is because for me there's I don't need confidence to speak to clients now about what we do as financial planners I know what we do I know it's just as you know as factual as the fact is I'm sitting on a chair right now the planning that I'll do for you will add value and I know that because I went through it I don't think many financial planners have been through a financial planning process themselves and I, and I now know, I'm sorry to say, I don't think you can create a truly um, immersive, engaging client planning process if you haven't gone through one yourself. You are just going to become almost, I think, slightly hypocritical. And so we need to sub submit ourselves to a planner and say, please plan for me. Someone who you feel comfortable with and so that you can understand what it's like to be on the the other side of the desk so to speak thank you for sharing that story i mean it's it is it what strikes me is that you didn't respond to say no but it's fine i'll sort it out or hey i'm not charging you for this um i'm taking control of the finances was that your initial reaction or was it just oh wow well like she has a point <laughs> my wife has a point and let's go <laughs> see someone I'm... yeah it's my initial reaction was almost like shock like <gasps> <laughs> you're accusing me of not, but then, you know, as I was saying that, I'm like, you know, you're right. Um, I don't understand what you need to hear. I don't know what you need to hear now financially. I mean, you're getting a severance package. Mm -hmm. You've been in the company for over a decade. So that's a windfall. 
that is a conversation on its own. You've lost employment. You're going to have to become self-employed. Um, you know, thank the Lord, it's all been super successful. My wife is very happy where she is, and she's doing what she loves now, working for herself. But at the time, I mean, it's it's traumatic. You're losing a limb, kind of. And so I just realized I'm not equipped to help you, mm. but I'm seeing clients who are going through the same thing. I did retrenchment counseling sessions during COVID, and I learned a lot from what we did with with my planner, with Mary, and I, I got my own notes from that. In my experiences, what I felt, I took. And I started speaking to clients, you know, bringing that into my meetings. Was that a counselor that you saw to, to train you around it? or No, but, um, you know, if you take someone like Mary, and I know you're yeah. also studying coaching, um, the coaching conversation is very empowering. Um, it's not a therapy session, um, and it's not um, a grieving session or whatever the case may be. But it kind of gives you the tools to make decisions that you need to make at this point in time. Yeah. And I think the conversation will be different for every circumstance and every person. Financial planners, we will probably have a similar conversation with everyone. And we will try and put them through the same six steps of a process. And if they're not ready to get there, we're going to like kick them through the door and say... It's their fault. Yeah, <laughs> it's their fault, yeah. Um, but the bottom line is yeah. that um, I didn't feel I was equipped to deal with that level of um, trauma. And my wife, I mean, it wasn't grieving per se. No, you know, no one died. But it's it's just a case of there's something big happening. And that happened to 600 or so of her colleagues. So, there, you know, there were a lot of her colleagues who came to me and I had to help them decide what to do with, you know, 20 years worth of retirement savings in a company fund or whatever the case may be. And so I was having those dis- discussions with other people, but I wasn't having them with my wife. But at the same time, um, I think I was just too close to it, you know. Um, mm-hmm. My wife is super strong, so if I say, yeah, walk it off, you'll be good. Is, you know, she didn't need to hear that. And she didn't, from our planner, she didn't get counseling. But what, what, what we did get was the tools to assess the situation and to make some, some really good dis- high-quality decisions based on where we were. That wasn't in my coursework. And that is why, once again... <laughs> The work for me has just begun because everyone goes through a lot of stuff in life. And um, Mitch Anthony talks about up to you know, 50 or 60 major life events. And, you know, so you plan and you plan, but life happens. And I think it's, it's super valuable. I've seen being on the receiving end of that advice. I know, I know 100% factually that it's valuable to have that as a planner in your armory that you can, you can call on when you need to. That's such a beautiful way to end. Brian, thank you so much for being here. All the best for the future. I know this uh, foundation that you've laid is going to be immensely strong and make a difference in hundreds and thousands of clients' lives mm-hmm. over your career. And I look forward to building our friendship. Awesome. Thanks very much. I appreciate it.